Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental nerds, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Nick and I discuss the interviewing process. We talk to Cinder Miller about archaeology, fieldwork, and ACRA. And finally, Indiana Jones, while being unbelievably cool, next words, <clears throat> was a terrible archaeologist because the context where something is found is just as important as the object itself. So even though this is one of Nick's favorite movies, the smash and grab approach doesn't quite cut it. Yeah, which is really disappointing. I mean, I, I thought that's how all archaeologists did everything. It's just you run to an area, you grab something and you run away as everyone chases you. Is that not? Apparently, it's not the way you're supposed to do it. Okay. Fine. No. And uh, Cinder tells us all about it. So hit that music. Please join NAEP South Carolina to celebrate reaching 100 chapter members with a happy hour at Steel Hands Brewing in Columbia, South Carolina on August 12th from 5 to 7 p.m. NAEP South Carolina will provide free drinks for the first 20 people, so show up early, appetizers for all, and we'll have some giveaways. This event is free and open to all members and non-members alike, and no registration is required. Please visit the website at www.naep-sc.org for more information. Pretty cool. Awesome. I'm going to go. Yeah, I know. Right. And congrats to you guys for getting 100 members. That's so awesome. That's amazing. As always, we appreciate all of our sponsors and they are what keep the show going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please head on over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Let's get to our segment. And I do have a question uh, about what to do after a good interview. Well, so we did. We just interviewed somebody who did really well, like really great interview. And it's one of those things where it almost feels like dating where it's like, okay, that was great. Really had a great time. Really enjoyed this. We should do it again sometime. How long do I wait before I say anything? You know, it's like, is it, do I have to wait three days and be like, Hey, um, so we like you and we want to hire you. So here's the next step and all that. And it's, uh, she did a great thing. She did the, um, you know, that was the email. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed meeting with you guys. Looking forward to the next step, blah, 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 blah. And I said, thanks. You know, we'll let you know. We really enjoyed meeting you too. We'll let you know, blah, blah, blah. But then after that, I'm like, okay. I don't really want to wait because I don't want other people to snap this person up. And yeah, but it's also one of those things where like I already said that we're good and we'll get back to you soon. But it's funny because like I'm like trying not to be excited while also being excited. And you've met me, right? It's hard for me to contain some of that sometimes. <laughs> I Complete feel like, I don't know if this is a man thing. I hear so many men compare this situation to dating and it, it kind of drives me a little nuts. Oh, um, yeah. Go um, on. Because it's not dating, it's interviewing, it's different. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't think you should be considering how much time should I wait before you get back to this person. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be excited and pull that excitement into starting the person in the job. Mm-hmm. Like I've hired people on the spot before. I've had them go outside the door and then we deliberate and then bring them back in and say, that's it. We like you. Let's go. Um, hmm. See, that's why. See any reason to play like a game around it, you know? Yeah. I guess my concern isn't, and maybe I should yeah, reframing it differently. It's more like, I don't want to come across as overly enthusiastic, which I tend to do. And I get very excited about things because it can be, it can be overwhelming sometimes. Like, I, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> so that's my only thing is like, I don't want to be, I am excited, but I don't want to be like. So I would say just time. let someone else yeah. tell them then, <laughs> yeah. but there's no reason to wait. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. And, and like, I have to get approval for like our higher ups and like they're on vacation. 
but it also means I have to wait five days before I can actually hire somebody, which makes me okay. Yeah, well, that's antsy. a different scenario. Yeah, uh, that's one of the things that's stressing me out. It's like I have to wait, and I don't want to wait, and I don't know how to handle that other than be like, I'm talking with upper management. You know, don't go away. <laughs> I don't know. That just sounds like a pre-planning thing. I have an interview. I need either permission to hire before you go, or you know, or <laughs> you know, it, it's schedule different. Yeah, that would be nice. Sometimes it just doesn't work that way. There's just, yeah. we got the interview set up and we had to do it a certain day. It just happened to be the day. Yeah. There. And on the flip side, it's, I think people are not expecting to get an answer right away. So, yeah. Okay. Is yeah, what true. it is. See, you got to call me, you're walking me back because I'm like stressing out <laughs> about it. Yeah. But it's like, it's, it's funny because I honestly, like when we, when we set it up, I was like, okay, here's another one. Here we go. Cause we've been looking for like, you know, like a couple months and, just you had a lot of bad interviews. We had one pretty good interview, but like it's just like our timing didn't work out well. But uh, no, it's funny. I actually had, went in with zero expectations. I was like, well, we'll see. And she was great. So, what's the bad interview? Why is that happening? Well, you get interviews where there's a few things happening, right? One is that there's a, there's not a lot of people that are actually applying for jobs. It is hard across the board to find people that are doing good work. Like it's just it's just hard right now in the environmental policy space there's just not that many people so the pool is small yeah so people listening hear this yes because that's what you come to me crying about with career coaching is i can't find a job and there's nobody hiring that is not true <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah you're right you are right and um you know we talked about it before i had somebody literally reach out to me specifically being like hey why haven't you hired me yet and she's one of our best workers like that stuff does work it does work but like, uh, so there's not, not a lot of people applying who we are getting to apply. Sometimes they're so far off the mark that we're not going to bother interviewing them. We're looking for an environmental policy expert. I don't want to hire an environmental engineer, right? There's some stuff that's so far away. Like if you don't even mention the word NEPA, even though the job is littered with it, it is literally like NEPA, 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 NEPA. and you don't mention policy. You don't mention the environment. You don't mention NEPA. I'm not going to bother because it's a waste mm -hmm. of my time, right? You didn't take the 13 seconds it takes to add NEPA to your resume. Why would I hire you? Well, Why would I even true. look at you? Yeah. I tell um, people all the time, if you don't take the effort to make those few changes and update your cover letter, then don't bother applying. Yeah, exactly. And so that happens. And then when we do get to people, sometimes, you know, someone will look good on paper and they just won't be in the interview. And we ran into that a couple of times. Some of it was we had people who were like, I don't like my commute. So you're like, so what? And they're like, that's it. <laughs> you're like, what? You know? And so you have some, you know, tough ones. We have, we've had people who didn't have exactly what we were looking for, you know, like they were really enthusiastic and really good people, but maybe not quite what we were after. So, you know, we're looking for somebody independent and who can go after, you know, who has client relationships and wants to really grow in their career. And that's what we want to do is send people out and teach them up and stuff like that so that they're kind of self-sufficient and we don't have to do a whole lot of teaching, just a little. And, uh, you know, obviously as that goes on, we, we do more, but like we were getting people who just didn't have, didn't fit that, you know, bill for whatever reason. We had somebody even tell us like, we actually were, we were kind of considering field folks as well. Right. So it's like, well, if you have, if you don't have NEPA background specifically, but you're also really good in the field, we have a natural resources wing of our company. So, Okay. We'll still interview you. And then, you know, we interview people and like, well, I've, I've worked for eight years. So I put my time in. I don't have to go in the field anymore. And we're like, what? She's, yeah. 
well, I don't, I don't have to do that anymore because I did it already. I'm like, well, I still go out in the field sometimes. Yeah. Like, it's not like a all the time thing. But if you're leading a field effort, it's very hard to do that from your office. So, yeah. you know, that's the other things that we're seeing. It's just that we, we're getting people that just don't quite line up. They're not quite what we're looking for. And, you know, I don't want to hire somebody that kind of works. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you put specifically what you're looking for in your job descriptions? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. We have our, we have to actually, we have to like, we have a full protocol for the requirements for what we're doing, why we're doing it. We even have like a a new system where it puts in like the, I guess it's kind of like a tier system where it's like, you know, tier one is like entry level and tier five is like God level. Like, you know, like you don't need anyone to tell you how to do anything because you've done it all. You are the lead, you know, the expert kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, we definitely do that. But yeah, okay. like I say, we, we still get a lot of, you know, just odd resumes, you know, I think we've talked about that before. Like you get random ones that you're just like, why did you apply to this? You know, but we do. Yeah, that's okay. People are using the shotgun method, you know? Yeah. And, but that just tells you that they either don't know what they want or they don't care what they get. They just want a job. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, the ones that are the best fits are the ones who take the time to answer the questions correctly and read the job description and visualize how they would fit in and succeed in the role. So, yeah. and are willing to learn and, and hear, you know, Oh, you need me in the field sometime. Cool. I'll do that. Yeah. It's kind of neat. And uh, like I say, I try not to get too excited until the, everything's done. Cause you never know. Cause how this will go. Maybe even this person that we just interviewed that I really like might, might be going, man, that was a great interview. Really love that. So anyways, bosses, uh, they're going to pay me this much. So if you pay me more, then I'll stay here. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that might also happen. And I've, I've seen it. I've seen it happen. And I, I don't think that's a really healthy tactic. I think long run, what you've told your bosses is I, I'm, you know, willing to hold <laughs> my position hostage to get what I want. There's a balance, I think, with that. But I don't know. It's, yeah, I've uh, seen that where that works kind of one time, but the second time yes. it's not appreciated. Right. It's like, fine, go. <laughs> you don't want to be here. We get it. You know? Yeah. I think we always want, I mean, we always want people that want to do the job that they're in, you know, that's always way better. <laughs> it seems obvious, but a lot of people are just like, well, this is what I know how to do. So I'll do it. Even though I don't like it. That's and that's tricky. tough. Yeah. We're talking this to death, I think. So uh, let's get to our interview. Sounds good. Welcome back to EPR. Today we have Cinder Miller, Vice President of Gray and Pape, Inc. and President-Elect of ACRA, the American Cultural Resources Association on the show. Welcome, Cinder. Hi, thanks for having me today. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. Just to kick us off, tell us a little bit about what Gray and Pape does and what your role is there. Sure. Gray and Pape is a cultural heritage management firm, and we do archaeology and architectural survey, as well as cultural heritage management. We work predominantly here in the United States, but we also have an international practice as well broad range of professionals working for us across the country, um, projects in both the public and the private sector. And my role there, I'm a vice president of operations, which is uh, <laughs> pretty vague. Uh, you know, we're a consulting firm, right? It means that I do just about everything as far as I can tell I do. But I like to classify my job as about 30 to 40% project work, uh, about 30% business development and client management, and the rest of it is sort of firm management and organization. Nice. Yeah. So you have degrees in classical and Near Eastern archaeology. Before I go any further, can you tell me, who knows nothing about this, what the difference between <laughs> those two are? 
Sure, sure. So most people who work as archaeologists here in North America have a degree in anthropology. And, you know, when most people think of anthropology, they're thinking of uh, North America, South America, uh, or or Europe, history of human cultures. So archaeology, the difference, archaeology is actually a subspecialization of anthropology. It's one of the four disciplines of anthropology. It's this It's the science of the research of material culture, very specifically. So classical and Near Eastern archaeology. So Near Eastern is Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, you know, that that area that that people would now think of sort of as the Middle East um, and Iran, Iraq as well. And then classical archaeology is broadly Greek and Roman archaeology. So... I am somebody who is trained in classical and Near Eastern archaeology, who's now been working here in North America for about 25, just over 25 years. That's really awesome. Yeah. Is that, well, first of all, what was your interest to get those degrees? And then is that what, when you graduated, is this what you're doing now, what you thought you were going to be doing? (laughs) Great questions. So when I graduated from college, So my college, my undergraduate degrees were in economics and the fine arts. And I went to New York (laughs) University, right? So fine arts at New York University is actually art history. And I had an amazing series of art history professors. I never, when I started college, I was going to be a lawyer. That was my plan all along was to be a lawyer. And so, you know, there I was this undergraduate in New York City taking these amazing art history classes. And I just fell in love with like everything related to the arts and art history. And then I had... Two or three really great professors who were archaeologists, who were classical archaeologists there at NYU. And one of them kind of steered, when I graduated from college, I needed a job. And she got me this amazing internship working with these archaeologists who had spent, they were both 90 years old and they had spent their entire adult lives. So like 70 years working at the Agora in Athens, which is the big marketplace that's at the base of the Acropolis, if you've ever been there. Mm -hmm. And they just needed help processing material that they had collected over time. And I started doing that. And they, I don't know, after about two or three months, they said to me in the most endearing way, you know, you're minimally competent at this, but we think you should go to graduate school to maybe learn a little more. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. So I applied to graduate school in archaeology and got a great offer from Bryn Mawr College and went to Bryn Mawr, which is a relatively small school. There was only five or six graduate students there every year, but it was an amazing, just an amazing place, an amazing experience. And, you know, kind of sort of transitioned into that. So I when you are accepted at Bryn Mawr, you're at that point, you were accepted into the PhD program. So I was there for six or seven years. And again, when I graduated, there were no jobs in classical <laughs> archaeology, right? There's no, this is a huge problem now of, you know, the, the way that people are hired as faculty in academia now has changed significantly over time. But a, a really good friend of mine who had graduated a few years earlier said, hey, I'm working here in North America doing this cultural resources management. Do you want to come on down and try this for a little while. And I'm like, okay, I'll go and live in New Orleans for a little while. I'll see what's so bad about that, right? (laughs) You know, um, try it out, try out this whole archaeology thing. Why not? And after a few years, it was a great mix for me. Kind of my undergraduate degree in economics really helped me, I think, with the business side of what we do as part of cultural resources management here in the United States. You know, they're coupled with my, my love of archaeology, and it was a great fit, but it was not a not a direct path by any stretch of the imagination and really not something I would have 
envisioned a long time ago. But now, I mean, I love what I do. We get a chance to make a difference on some of our projects, really significant difference. And it's just great to, you know, travel around and find stuff and help clients. And really my job now is I really help my clients achieve their objectives. I mean, much more business focused than I ever would have imagined as an academic, but great, just a great opportunity and a lot of fun. Yeah. And I I should be responsible here and ask you a really good follow-up, but I really want to know where your first name came from. So (laughs) how how are you heading to the center? So I... I have an older sister whose name is Mary Hope. Just called me like 20 minutes, but I had to silence her. So, but uh, sorry, hates it when I do that. But the, but uh, when I was born, she couldn't say sister, and so she called me her little cinder. And I have been called that now, you know, for 50 plus years. If you were to, if you had asked me at the beginning of this for my driver's license, uh, you'd see that the name on that is Geraldine. <laughs> um, so that's the, they are totally unrelated and it's kind of nice having a, just a total counter identity because people who call me Geraldine, they're, they're either they're yeah, really uh, close family or like, or, I don't really yeah. want to talk to them. Yeah, <laughs> so. <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually mentioned, um, the balance between, you mentioned how you help your clients and there's a, there really is a balance between preservation and development. So how do you help your clients kind of? work through those challenges? Yeah, you know, it's a great challenge. We spend a lot of time helping our clients understand that preservation doesn't mean that you can't do something. You can still do your projects. You can still develop. But what you do need to do is identify the resources that you could be destroying or impacting and then figure out how to mitigate any of those impacts that you're having on those resources. And it takes a lot of conversation for people to understand that something that they might see as a really minor impact could be really meaningful to somebody else. But I'll tell you, Nick, when you have a project where a client, where they really engage in a conversation with the community or with the Native American tribes or with stakeholders who might have initially objected to their project and they figure out how to achieve a balanced, you know, how to get their project done and how to help those stakeholders with some need they have. It's fantastic. It's how you marry the development and the preservation objectives. I don't like to say development versus preservation. I would much rather see people understand the partnership between those. And I'll tell you some of the best projects that we've done here locally in Cincinnati there's a ton of development here, but they've developed so many historic resources so spectacularly, right? It's great. So here's all this economic development happening in this urban areas that really were <laughs> kind of falling apart and neglected. They get preserved. They get developed. It's a win-win for everybody. It takes a lot of work and a lot of cooperation, but it really can happen. Yeah. And you actually also get this, you build trust that way, <laughs> right? Well, Isn't that something? It's amazing, right? You can help build trust between different stakeholders who have historically just hated each other, right? They yeah. have very little, they, they think they have nothing in common. And sometimes just finding one or two projects where they can, I'm not even going to say cooperate, maybe even just agree on a couple of things. <laughs> and it's amazing what kind of bridge that can build. It's pretty cool when it does all work out. I wish I could say it worked every time. Not so much true, but like those times that it does work out, it's really neat to see the projects develop. Yeah. And so you do this 
with your projects, but like, what's the day-to-day life of an archaeologist? What are they doing day in, day out? So I should say, you know, like, I haven't been like an archaeologist out in the field in, you know, 20 plus years consistently now, but I will tell you, we employ quite a few archaeologists at Grand Pape. And so I'll have to stratify this just a little bit for you, you know, so when you're, you know, whatever, you're up at my level and you're doing mostly business development, you spend a lot of time in the office, like, all these interns want to come and shadow me. And I'm like, you do not want to shadow me. Like, it's so <laughs> boring. Yeah, it's like meeting after meeting. I don't know. Don't do that. Yeah. Spreadsheet after. So then you have like what I would call a principal investigator. And that's the person who will have technical responsibility for a project. It's a technical title, but it's an important one here in North America. That person probably spends 50% of their time in the field and 50% of their time in the office. And they have to be an expert on all things archaeology, but usually either pre-contact or post-contact would be the things that they would be the experts on. And they spend a lot of time in the field. And what that means here in North, you know, it's a lot of time in hotel rooms, then a lot of time out in the field digging. um, Mostly those guys are supervising, you know, our field archaeologists. And then if you're an actual field archaeologist, you are probably spending 80 to 90% of your time out in the field, either doing survey, which is Usually you walk a long distance looking at the ground, you know, looking for artifacts or sometimes working at a site to excavate that site. And it's uh, it's pretty tough, demanding physical labor. They work super hard away from their families quite a bit. You know, it's a great experience for people who like to travel, who like to see new places. You do have to be somebody who can work as part of a team. We never work alone. Teamwork and collaboration is a huge part of what we do. You know, the average report at Grand Pape probably has six or seven different people who have written parts of it, and then easily 20 people who have contributed through field work. So it's mostly what an archaeologist does. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely a little bit of everything. Jack of all trades is very helpful. Yeah. Do you think the movies and stuff have glamorized what an archaeologist actually does I mean? Is it hard to yeah, go day after day without actually yeah. discovering anything? Or <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I do have a whip and like a hat and all that kind of stuff. You know, and like I, I you know, I can like break that stuff out of Halloween. You know, right, so that right. works out really good for me. The, but Laura, it's a really funny question because we have projects. We did a project like two or three years ago where we had these people working on it. it was like a pipeline job in Wisconsin or something like that, and they were working. Well, I mean, they were working. 10-hour days, six days a week, all the way up through Thanksgiving, which is hard. I mean, it was cold, yeah. it was dark, it was hard. And they they dug something like 4,000 dry shovel tests. And so when I say dry, it means they didn't find anything. So oh. I just want you to think about like going to your backyard and digging a hole, digging 4,000 holes and finding nothing. Like for an archaeologist, it's super, you just do it day after day and just walking in a straight line again and again and again. And it happens, right? So the good thing about that is that it means that that project's not going to disturb any archaeological sites, right? I mean, go ahead, build, yeah. build what yeah. you want from a historic preservation point of view. From an archaeologist perspective, it just is boring, right? After a <laughs> yeah. while, it's like, oh, can we just find something? So, but it does happen. I mean, it really does happen. <laughs> yeah. And how Well, how exciting then are those moments when you find something so let's say I'm, I'm digging, I've been digging for four days straight and I finally find something that I think is a thing. Like, what do I do? So when you find something that you think is a thing, you know, out there in the field, 
And most of our archaeologists are well enough trained to know if they've actually found something. I mean, right, most of the things that they find are stone tools, which if you're not trained, it looks an awful lot like a rock. So you actually do have to know if what you're looking at is natural, natural, like just a rock or cultural, right? So a rock that's been modified by human hands. So, you know, you find it and you're like, yeah, you know, I found something. And most of the time you're finding something, so you don't get quite that excited. But, you know, you find it and then... We have a pretty elaborate system for how you catalog what you found. So right now, we'll have somebody come over with one of our GPS units and they'll piece plot exactly. They'll put on the little iPad exactly where you found it. That'll upload like, you know, 20 seconds later. And I'd love to see it. I could sit in my office and see what you found. They put it in a bag. They write down exactly where it's from. And then ultimately, that, that artifact will make its way back to our lab. And somebody in the lab will analyze it to say exactly what it was. But... If you're at a big excavation, it's a lot different because then you're finding stuff constantly. And so your process for how you're tracking all that stuff gets a little bit more complicated. But yeah. Cool. I just picture someone like yelling like, bingo. (laughs) 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 You know, sometimes if you find something really cool, we've worked on a couple of projects lately where people do find stuff that's really cool. And it is is like that. Um, I mean, the thing I think that's funny about it, though, it's like it's part of your job. Like it's actually your job to go and find stuff. So it's kind of like, okay, well, you found something, so you take out your thing and you like yeah, just do right, your thing. Right. You just kind of keep going, unless right. it's really cool. And then when it's really yeah. cool, you definitely share with everybody around you. So, that's right. cool. So you've been with Gray and Pape for many years, as you said. And how have they grown or changed over the years? Oh wow, let's see. When I started at Gray and Pape, so I've been there. Uh, I can't remember if it's my 24th or 25th year. I'll have to look that up because, you know, it would be awesome to to get a plaque (laughs) or something like that. Uh, Right, exactly, right? When I started, Graham Pape had two offices. We had the Cincinnati and then we had an office in Richmond, Virginia. We've grown to five offices. So, you know, we have Cincinnati, Richmond, Cincinnati and Richmond still, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Houston, Texas, and Indianapolis. And then we have couple of actually not just a couple bunch of employees that work from like their home locations now we've gone from being i don't know there might have been 20 to 25 people there when i started there's we're up to there's about 50 of us now i would say to me the kind of coolest change that we've had we now have a pretty active international practice we do a lot of cultural heritage projects overseas i just Nobody feels sad for me when I tell them that like two weeks ago, I was in Paris working on a project. You know, it's like, so we have, that to me is the, like the, I think the coolest change, I would say the, and just also in complexity, um, you know, we have a lot more degreed professionals, you know, of the, of our staff of, you know, between 45 and 50, the probably three quarters of them have a master's degree or better. It's a pretty educated, you know, workplace, you know, you got to, a lot of unusual water cooler conversations kind of thing, you know, we're all there, but that's really how it's changed the most over the years. It's just grown in size and complexity. Yeah. And how do you manage, um, you know, policy and regulation changes too? So you're doing a lot more as you go, you know, you're doing a lot more complicated work. I don't know how much the policies really changed that much recently, but there's always changes. There's always nuances. You always get a little bit better at dealing with those kinds of things. So how do you scale up and still maintain all of that institutional knowledge that helps you do those projects well. So, man, is that a challenge? You know, so one of the things that it's frustrating about cultural resources management in the United States for our clients is that as you move from state to state, the regulations change. You know, the requirements for how much archaeology you have to do change a lot. So, like a really simple example that I could give would be like, you know, here in Ohio, you may have to dig a shovel test like every 15 meters. 
and then you cross the river into Kentucky, right? Not mm-hmm. very far away. And all of a sudden you can dig a shovel test every 20 meters. Well, why, what, what, why? Like, why, why has this changed? And, <laughs> right. and it's important because it costs a lot more, right? However, those things are closer together. You have to spend more money, all that kind of stuff. At Grave Pape, the way we do this is we have divided our work into regions and practices. So we have practice leaders who are responsible for really understanding. We have a practice leader for archaeology, architectural history, maritime services, and cultural history. And they're really responsible for knowing the best practices and the most, like their method, technology, and the regs, you know, for their particular segment of our work. And those guys really have to be experts in and they can't know everything, but they have to know, like if I were to call up and say, hey, when somebody called me and wants to do a project with, I don't know, like the FAA as the lead in like Kansas, like, what do I got to do? You know, how, how can I scope that? How do I, what is it that we're going to have to do? They don't have to know it off the top of their head. They need to know how to figure it out. And so that's really what we do. The other thing though, that we have are, I'd call them a couple of really super hardcore specialists. Like we have a couple of people, like our Indiana office is very heavily focused on transportation and they're awesome at what they do. They just make a project. They they know exactly what's going to have to be done. They do it. We have some other people who are really heavily specialized in natural gas pipelines. Uh, You know, they understand the FERC. They understand all those regulations. But the most recent challenge that we've had, Nick, we've done tons of projects for the solar energy industry. Solar is just booming. Um, You know, it's great, but it is super complicated. And again, every state is different and there's not a lot of hardcore regulation on it. And so some clients are super conservative and they're like, nope, you know, we don't want to have any problems. Just do the maximum level of effort. And other clients are like, do I got, I'd rather do just the minimum and it's fine. I mean, you just have to know, I would say the most complex set of projects that we have now, we're doing a lot of offshore wind projects, particularly up in the Northeast and ours are Amanda Evans, who's our maritime practice leader. It's just amazing. But the projects that they do are so complex. It's extraordinary. And for every other part of Graham Pape, I can step in and help somebody out, like in a pinch with something. And for those projects, it's like I can help manage your contracts and like you know, make sure, like, but like the rest of it, I can read your report and make sure the English is good. But I mean, it's but it, they are true experts. I think again, that's something that's probably changed in cultural resources management over the last twenty years is just the super specialization. Mm-hmm. Well, are they doing, yeah. sorry, Nick, I'm going to cut you off. Are they doing underwater archaeology or are they starting up to the shoreline? So it's underwater. So we, and I mean, you know, we could, this is a very deep rabbit hole. So I'm going to keep it as shallow <laughs> as I can. But like for those offshore wind projects, they'll go out and they'll assess. You can look at like a literature search to see, hey, are there any known shipwrecks? You know, stuff like that. Then they do several other components as well. They uh, run instruments sub-bottom profiler, magnetometer, side scan sonar to look at the ocean floor and see, you know, try and detect, hey, is there something down there that maybe nobody knew about? And then they also drill a lot of cores. So they, you know, core, they core before they, they can put the wind farms in out there anyway to, you know, look at the geology, but they use the cores now to also determine the possibility that wherever that core is being sunk might have actually been 
above the air, right? Might have been ground surface previously. And that to me is the like, so you, you then look at the the super the paleo the paleo landscape that you're identifying in those cores. Um, and again, it it is super fascinating. It's very technical and it's a very aggressive market now because there's so much development out there. Yeah. Oh man. Well, you know, we love to ask really unfair questions. So you have all these projects. You've worked on hundreds of projects all over the country. You've you've gone to other countries and haven't taken us, which is totally fine. We're not mad about that at all. <laughs> um, but do you have a favorite? Is there something that sticks out in your mind as one of your favorites? So unfair. <laughs> I, so I will say, all right. So when I was working down in New Orleans, even though it was a super long time ago, I spent more time in the field. You know, when you're in the field more, you're, you feel so connected to the projects. And I also had a series of clients down there that I was really connected to. We just got along really well and I did all their projects. And right before I was, the, the last year that I was in New Orleans, I was doing a, a project for Texaco and it was a gas plant in La Rose, Louisiana, which is way, way down in Lafouche Parish in the southern reaches. And it was a giant prehistoric site that had many burials on it and they had to build their gas plant there. And working on that project was, it was really life-changing for me because it was the first time I had ever really talked with Native Americans in a context, you know, that was something that wasn't academic. It's like, wait, you know, these are our ancestors, like how help us. Uh, and they were, they taught me so much. And it was a, just a fantastic experience working with them and with the folks from Texaco and the crew and the team that I had there. It was just amazing. The stuff that we found, I mean, there's still artwork all over my house. We found a whole bunch of new varieties of pottery that I got to like be the person who would name what kind of pottery we had. I worked with so many just awesome experts and just the, it was just cool. And the stories that we have there, I mean, the funniest story that I have from the project was it was, it was really close to, it was close to Houston. So like the Texaco and it was a big gas plant they were building. So they, like all the Texaco officials would like helicopter in from Houston, you know, every now and then. And like all these guys would show up in their like fancy suits and their like leather shoes and like come through this archaeological site that was clay. It was clay covered in water. <laughs> Let me just say that is not a good mix with leather shoes. And, you know, and they're like, look at all of us like super dirty archaeologists. And But the thing that was super meaningful to me about it was that by the end of the whole project, the two guys that I worked with from Texaco, who at the beginning of the project were like, really, we're going to have these archaeologists in the middle of our gas plant where we're trying to build this thing. If I was too busy on site, they could actually give a tour. They had learned the yeah. entire prehistory yeah. of yeah. Louisiana. They knew why the site was important. They could express that. They could talk about how come it was important for Texaco to do what they were doing. I was like, done. Like yeah. you got, like you've learned this. You can teach somebody else, and it's actually meaningful to you. Like you actually, like you will take this for. They still, you know, twenty five years later, I still get Christmas cards from those guys, which is oh, like cool. it's amazing. That's I awesome. love it. Right, yeah. it's pretty cool. So yeah. So if I had to pick one, I'll have to pick that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's a really good one. Well, that's perfect because it is time for field notes. It's the segment of our show when we talk about our guests' most memorable field experiences. So you've shared one, but I know with 250 plus projects under your belt that you have more and we love hearing them. So recently, though, I think you had a, a meeting with landowner. I don't know how recent this was, actually, but a meeting with landowners and maybe this was 
was kind of scary. So actually, that was a long time ago as well. That was actually when I was working down south. It is a good story, actually. So it, it actually highlights some of the complexities of what we do. So I was working on a project in um, Shreveport, Louisiana, and we were working for the Army Corps of Engineers. And we had to uh, do a survey of an area that's called the Batcher, um, which if you've not lived in the South, you might not know the Batcher. So the Batcher, there's a big levee. So there's a river and then there's a levee. And then the area between the levee and the river, where it is usually very rich agriculture, right? It's the floodplain, but it's not protected, right? So it floods all the time, very rich agriculturally, okay? So land, the core leases that land out to, you know, farmers and they can grow, you know, whatever. I mean, mostly it's where I was, it was all cotton fields, but nobody can really see you there because it's on the other side of the levee, right? So, you know, here you are, we were surveying in this area and I don't, I think that the Corps of Engineers had not really, had not informed the landowner that we were going to be out there and they were, they were out crop dusting. They saw all these people in their cotton field and they came over and they crop dusted us to get us out of there. And it was like the second project that I'd ever worked on here in North America. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Like, why would anybody ever do something like that? So I, you know, I went back, I, we left, got everybody out of the field. You know, we went back to hotel, our hotel, everybody took a shower, you know, I, whatever. I called the office to say, okay, what do I do? Like, what are, you know, what are some of the things that we need to do? And they're like, well, that should not have happened. And I'm like, well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, (laughs) But like it did. So whatever. We figured out the medical side of it. Everybody was fine after, you know, after a day or two. But one of the things that I think is so hard about our job as archaeologists is that we are often like, so we're often the first point of contact with a landowner about a project, right? We're going out to survey their land. Some land agent might have come to their house to ask for permission. They might have, you know, they, they well, presumably they said yes before somebody sends us there, but they don't know a whole lot about the project. And they definitely don't know what an archaeological survey is, right? They don't know that a bunch of people are going to show up there and start digging a bunch of holes in their property. And it's tough sometimes being that that the tip of the spear, because then they'll ask, what are you doing? And like, well, tell me all about the project. And it's like, I don't, you know, often we don't know very much, you know, we might know if it's a pipeline or a power line, but you know, that's pretty much it, you know, and certainly the people in the field, I mean, I might sitting in my office, I might know a lot about it, but the person out there actually doing the work, maybe not so much. So that was pretty scary. And it's pretty routine for us to have people confronted by people with guns. We've had a lot of people, you know, confronted by mean dogs, you know, our policy is always just leave. You know, I'm not, we're not going to argue. It's not our job to argue with anybody. We will leave. But those are the bad days. I hate getting those off those calls in the office now. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, those those are tough days, but there's also some really funny days out in the field too. So we want to give you a chance to give us one of those stories as well. Maybe uh, Big Jim talking about that. So it's kind of funny. It's the same project that, so, you know, I, well, it, I, I spent about two and a half years in Shreveport, Louisiana. You meet a lot of people, but one of the elements of our projects is always, you have to write a chapter about the history, the local history of the place. And so we had found, we were out surveying and we found the remnants of what was clearly a plantation of some kind, you know, and I'm like, wow, you know, got to learn a little bit more about this. So we go to the library and we like figure out who owned the land. And, and it's like, oh, okay, well, 
you know, I'm looking at this and it's like, I can't remember the guy's last name. So, you know, it was like Beauregard or something like that, but it was James Beauregard or something like that. And, you know, and then I kind of go back and I look, you know, in the, in the title search and I look at the next landowner back and it's James Beauregard. And I go back like five and it's like, you know, five generations of James Beauregard. Now, in the title search, they were all just called James Beauregard. It was not like, you know, it wasn't the first, second, third, fourth, junior. No, they all just had the same name. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, well, this James Beauregard right now, like this guy lives like three miles from this courthouse where I'm sitting. Like, how about I just go and talk to him? And he could tell me about, you know, what's here. And, you know, I can learn a little bit. So I, you know, I, this is again, before everybody has a cell phone and all this kind of stuff. So one day I just like show up at this guy's house and, you know, knock on the door and this woman, um, this woman answers the door and I said, you know, hi, I'm whatever Cinder Miller. And I, you know, I'm working with the Corps of Engineers and like, I'd like to talk to James Beauregard. And she was like, well, who do you want to talk to? And I said, well, James Beauregard. And she was like, well, do you want to talk to Jim? Itty bitty Jimmy. James, Big Jimmy, or, and I can't even remember the last, and literally there were five James Beauregards there. And it was awesome because I, I said, well, how about just let, the oldest one, like whoever's the <laughs> oldest person there, yeah. like, let me talk to that guy. And it was great because, so I came in and they, they sent me down and they gave me a glass of sweet tea, which again, very <laughs> typical of what's going to happen to you in, in Shreveport, Louisiana. And they're like, now, what are you asking all these questions about? They're like, you're not some Yankee from New York City, are you? And which is <laughs> hilarious because I actually am a Yankee from New York City. And I'm like, well, I am, but that's not why I'm here. You know, I just, I'm learning about the history of your property. And once they established that I was okay, they told me all about this land, you know, and they're like, look at whatever, like, yes, that was our the plantation, but like, it's not good land. And, you know, and again, it was in the bad, it was too close to the river, all this kind of stuff. But the thing that's just neat about it is like, while my job is to go out and find historic resources, it's about making connections and relationships with people, you know, that that really makes the job meaningful. And so now, like after the whole project was finished and they needed some ideas for how to mitigate some of their impacts, I'm like, hey, why don't you, you can't put up like a, a plaque or not a plaque, but like a, like a roadside kiosk right there. Cause it's like in the bathroom, nobody would see it. But like, how about up like in the closest crossroads? You could do a really cool little kiosk and a you know roadside marker about that property, which is still linked to people who live here in the community, and it would be neat. And they actually did it, which was like a miracle. So, and you know, it was like a, it's cool. So I that was a really fun experience, and I really enjoyed. I enjoyed meeting those people and like and again making that small impact like right there locally. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. I mean, I love nice. the uh, yeah getting to know people too. That's oh very, yeah, very yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sold. Um, I guess I need to go back to school. Um, <laughs> and speaking of, what advice would you have for someone who is considering this or maybe it has just an inkling that they might be interested in people and making these meaningful impacts and this could be an option for them? So I spend a lot of time talking to people who are thinking about careers in archaeology or anthropology or like historic preservation sort of writ large. So the first thing I could say right now is there's a huge labor shortage. We can't find, and this is not unique to our field right now, but we can't find enough archaeologists, architectural historians, or historians. And right now, these are very well-paying jobs. You know, I mean, we have people coming right out of a, right out of school with master's degrees, making really great salaries. 
So that if somebody is truly interested and passionate about it, your parents are going to tell you like, there's no jobs for you, like send them to me. And I'll be like, yeah, I'd hire you like tomorrow kind of thing. (laughs) But the other real advice though, that I would give people, there's the probably two or three parts of it, you know? So the first part of it would be writing is important. (laughs) The Mm -hmm. written word is critical the hardest thing for us to do is to get people to write well. I can train anyone how to identify and find stuff in the field. That part of archaeology is easy. Taking all of that information and then putting it into a report that's coherent and that actually tells a good story. Wow, that is the skill. And so like people constantly ask me to come, will you come and talk to my high school class and blah, blah. And the one thing I just say over and over and over again is focus on your writing because no matter what you do now, if you can write well, you will find a job because the number of people who really are successful writers moving their way through undergraduate at very much less graduate programs, it's just shrinking exponentially. I always encourage people, if you want to advance at all in our field, you really need a master's degree. And I have a very strong preference for hiring people who have done a thesis as part of their master's, as opposed to people who have tested out of it. Right now, we hire just about anybody, but it makes me feel a whole lot better if they've actually done that elaborate piece of research. The next thing that I would say is spend like three months on the road. Just figure out how to do some kind of road trip while you're away and see how that feels to you. Because if you are gone for like a month and you are just miserable and you hate life and you, you know, whatever, you miss the, your favorite ice cream store and you, you want to sleep late three days a week, like this is probably not the job for you. That's just reality. Our yeah. people travel all over the place. They're away from their families a lot even people who have pets, it's a challenge um, because there's a lot of hotels that won't take them now. You know, and I think the last thing that I would say is like, think about the things that you're actually passionate about. Some of the biggest topics that we're... So I think you asked me a little earlier, like some things that had changed over the years, like many of the topics that we focus on now as archaeologists, some of the resources that we're most focused on preserving resources associated with historically underrepresented or underfunded communities. If you're passionate about that, like I got a job for you because so many of our projects really focus on that. The coolest project that I've done in the last five or six years was in a housing project in Louisville, Kentucky, where they were tearing down this housing project, you know, and this was a place, it was a horrible neighborhood. It was like one of the seven most dangerous places in the United States. And yet this historically underrepresented, it had been built as an intentionally segregated community back in the 40s. And it was the only home that so many of these people had ever known. And so it was really an amazing project to touch base with that community and figure out, okay, how can we get you a safe and better place to live while acknowledging that like, this is your ancestral home. This is the only thing you've ever known. But people who are passionate about working with and understanding both any kind of underrepresented community here, mostly communities of color, but you know, LGBTQ communities, Native American, Hispanic, African American, all of it. These are huge, important topics that we can actually identify those people. We can give them a voice. We can help preserve the past that like we have never really cared about here in the United States. And like yeah. these are things that we can do. 
So if you're passionate about like really trying to make a difference in the next 20 to 30 years, like this is a great way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's very well said. And uh, yeah, maybe I should switch careers too. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I love all that. It's really cool. But, uh, you know, I want to give you some space here to talk about ACRA. Um, They have a a partnership with NAEP. So what is ACRA and what are some of the things you guys are working on? Sure. So ACRA is the American Cultural Resources Association. We're the trade organization that represents cultural resources management firms here in the United States. We have more than 200 members. The members that we have are all businesses, right? So it's not individual membership. It's a business membership. The things that ACRA is most active in would be the government affairs, government relations side. We have a very active presence in Washington, D.C., educating with and working with legislators there in D.C. so that they understand the issues associated with cultural resources management and preservation. Some of those are things that are easy to translate to African-American burial grounds um, legislation like pass that. Make sure that they keep funding the state historic preservation offices. Some of the issues that are super important for us are the everyday business topics related to small businesses. You know, we're almost all small businesses. So just sort of the bread and butter issues that any small taxation issues, regulation issues. Every now and then there will be some really fundamental type legislative issue that impacts us hard. So any change to the NEPA laws or to the Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Laws. Those are really hot, obviously hot button issues for us because they're the things that really empower our industry. But right now, it's interesting that right now the hottest topic in ACRA is the labor market, right? None of us can find enough archaeologists, you know? What do we do? You know, wages in our industry have gone way up. As a business person, at first, I was like, oh, we're not going to make as much money in it. But you know what? It's like, these are all, <laughs> I'm happy. I am happy to, you know, as we progress through the business cycle part of that and whatever, figure out how to increase our rates. You know, people are now making living wages in an industry where they weren't before. But that's a giant hot topic in ACRA. The other big hot topic in ACRA now is the Secretary of the Interior Standards. Should archaeology be regulated? You know, should there be like degree requirements? What are those actual requirements to qualify as an archaeologist or an architectural historian? Something that's really tough on our industry and that I think is also tough for environmental professionals is the when there's massive change in Washington, D.C. on the federal level, right? When everybody in the National Park Service turns over, yeah. it's really hard. Yeah. You know, there's you, all the things change, you know, and it's just hard to keep up, you know, people that you've had 15 to 20 year relationships with and agencies just, you know, go away. And, you know, change is hard, right? That's tough. When they lose as much institutional memory as was lost in some of those agencies in the last five or six years, it's going to take them 10 years. Some of those agencies will take 10 years to recapture where they were. But But that's what we do is ACRA. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Good to have ACRA working on those things. And we love our partnership together. You can always find ACRA's webinars on our page, I believe, um, and vice versa. I think that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> and then and I think there's a discount as well offered between the two. Like you get at the, I think we get the member rate for each thing right. as opposed to like yeah. the outsider rate. Yeah. 
All right. We're getting close to the end of our time, but we like to give our guests space to talk about things that they like to do in their downtime. Not that they don't all love their jobs and what they're doing, but we do need a break, right? So any interesting hobbies or interests that you have that you want to share with us? You know, I think I've, I mean, I love to travel. I was mentioning before I had this business trip in Paris and I went to visit some friends in Luxembourg right after that. That was like super awesome, especially after not getting the chance to travel for so long. And, you know, then I came back and like my family, we went to Maine and I just, I love going to new places and seeing new things. And, you know, I think my, my amusing hobbies, I think I told you, well, you guys all, you asked me at the very beginning about my name, which is Cinder, and it's really unusual. And so I collect uh, Cinderella stories. So I'm like looking at my bookshelf <laughs> here. Oh, cool. I've got like, I've got about 20 different versions of the Cinderella story. You know, when you, when you go to bookstores now, look for variations on the Cinderella story. You'll see there's all kinds of crazy variations of that. So, and then, you know, I'm from New York City and I just, I'm like one of those people who could sing like the I Love New York, you know, commercials <laughs> and stuff. I just love going to New York. Um, yeah. you know, I still have family there. My kids are there now. They've got a camp and in New Jersey. So, you know, I have a bunch of New York uh, like memorabilia, stuff like that in my house. But those are really the, it's the kind of stuff I love. I, I am also a sports fanatic. I'll watch anything. I wake up early now to watch the Tour de France every morning. And, you know, <laughs> it's like I get in a little bit late and, you know, it's all right. It'll be fine. I'll just stay <laughs> away. So, there we go. Exactly. <laughs> so that, no, that's all awesome stuff. And I love it. I love hearing about it. And um, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time today. Uh, I hate to let you go. But before we do, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we let you go? Man, no, I think we covered a lot of ground here. I really appreciated having the chance to talk with you guys and uh, yeah, chat I'm a little so bit about archaeology. On. Yeah, that worked out great. 100%. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me. I love it. All right. Well, great. Well, where can people get in touch with you? So I do have a LinkedIn page. I'm Cinder Miller. It's easy, easy to find me there, but also through my gray, through Gray and Pape. Um, it's uh, C Miller at Gray Pape. That's G R A Y P A P E dot com probably the best ways to get in touch with me and uh you know off the gray and pape website as well yeah perfect thank you so much for being here thanks for having me that's our show thank you cinder for joining us today please be sure to check us out each and every friday and don't forget to subscribe rate and review bye see everybody <laughs>